This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at Serial underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast is our Christmas special. Our white-bearded, jolly old killer isn't a serial killer, but rather a spree killer who committed his crimes during Christmas. This podcast will be on Ronald Gene Simmons. Ronald was born on July 15, 1940 in Chicago, Illinois. So let's get into some history for that time. In 1940, Germany and Italy gained control over an alarming amount of Western Europe, including the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, as well as invading France on their way to the English Channel. Finland and the USSR agreed to end the Winter War. Also in 1940, Benjamin O. Davis Sr., born in 1877, became the first African-American general of the U.S. Army. He had volunteered to fight during the Spanish-American War and retired in 1948. Also, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American actress to win an Academy Award for playing Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Walt Disney's Pinocchio and Fantasia were both released as well as Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Also during this year, the Selective Training and Service Act was signed into law allowing peacetime military draft in the United States. At this time, there were race riots going on in Chicago. Harlem, Los Angeles, and Detroit. Franklin D. Roosevelt won the presidential election and became the first third-term president. The first Captain America comic book was published. Nylon stockings went on sale to the general public and were an instant hit. So some notable people that were born this year were John Lennon, Richard Pryor, Mario Andretti, P. 
Peter Fonda, John Gotti, Tom Jones, The Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Al Pacino, Nancy Pelosi, Martin Sheen, and Ringo Starr. So this was the atmosphere that Ronald was born into. Ronald's parents were William and Loretta Simmons. William had a stroke when Ronald was just three years old and he died. In less than a year, his mother would already be remarried to another man. His stepfather was a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and when Ronald was six years old, the family relocated from Chicago to Little Rock, Arkansas. They moved around throughout central Arkansas quite a bit over the years. In September of 1957, Ronald decided to drop out of high school to join the U.S. Navy. And folks, that's literally all of his background I could find. So we really have nothing to go on as far as childhood experiences go. We know his biological father died when he was three years old and his mother was remarried by the time he was four. While the death of a parent is certainly difficult, he was far too young to have much, if any, memory of this traumatic event. He would have most likely thought of his stepfather as his own father, and since he was in the military, it is reasonable to assume that he would follow in his footsteps. So, after Ronald joined the Navy and completed boot camp, he was stationed at the Bremerton Naval Base in Washington State. He was then sent to San Diego, and while there, he met Rebecca, or Becky, Ulibari. They hit it off and dated for three years before Ronald and Becky married in New Mexico in 1960. Ronald was then 21 years old. Now, Becky's family state that back then he was, quote, just like any other guy. So around the same time, Ronald left the Navy and joined the U.S. Air Force, and he was cut out for military service. He served in Vietnam and actually won several awards, including one for marksmanship. Now, the couple had seven children together in total. In order of birth, Ronald Jean Jr., Sheila, William, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, Rebecca, and then Sylvia, born in 1981. And as far as all reports show, the family lived a fairly normal existence for many, many years. In November of 1979, Ronald retired from the Air Force as a Master Sergeant. During that time, he and the family resided in Cloudcroft, New Mexico. But after his retirement, people in the area began to be troubled by Ronald's behavior. Now, he had always drank, but began drinking from sunup until sundown. It was reported that he was rarely, if ever, seen without a beer in his hand. He also began physically and mentally abusing his wife, though I suspect this began long before he retired from the military. 
He indeed was acting strange, and some even later said they had begun to be a little afraid of the Vietnam veteran. When his children's friends would visit the Simmons household, they'd go home and tell their own parents that he always stayed in one particular room in his home, which was described as dark, spooky, and foul-smelling. Though it's not known when it started, and thought to have begun when she was about 15 years old, sometime in 1980, after having an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter, Sheila, he got her pregnant. Ronald confessed to Becky what he had done, and he demanded that they stay married and raise the baby as a member of the family. Becky confessed to family that she was completely humiliated, but she agreed and she stayed with him. On April 3rd, 1981, the Department of Human Services were notified and began an investigation into Ronald Simmons, claiming that he had participated in sexual relations with the now 17-year-old Sheila. On several occasions, people visiting the home had witnessed him giving her more than just fatherly kisses goodbye each morning. After being questioned, eventually Sheila opened up and told a school counselor that she was in fact pregnant with her father's baby. When Ronald found out that she had confessed, he wrote her a letter that included this statement, quote, You have destroyed me, and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell, unquote. The baby, named Sylvia, was born in June of 1981. Now, Sheila at first completely refused to press charges or testify against her father, but they apparently threatened her with contempt of court citation, and she finally testified. Once Ronald was notified that he was under investigation, he quickly packed his family up and disappeared in the middle of the night and fled to Ward, Arkansas in late 1981. When the incest indictment was returned, the police drove to his house to serve the arrest warrant, but the place was abandoned. So, Ronald's name was filed with the National FBI computer. However, he never came under the radar of law enforcement agencies during the year that he was in the computer. But word travels fast, and once the word was out, Becky, Ronald's wife's family, begged her to leave and divorce him. Her siblings have since been interviewed, and each stated plainly that they did not trust him, were disgusted with his actions, and that he became increasingly controlling. He cut his wife off nearly completely from her family. He purchased 13 acres of land near Russellville, Arkansas, and he named it Mockingbird Hill. The property was desolate, isolated. The house that the family lived in 
was two old decrepit mobile homes that had been butted up together to make one larger house. He also erected a very rudimentary privacy fence out of scrap metal and various materials that was, at some points, 10 feet tall. There was a telephone inside the house, but no active phone line. It had central heat and air, but that was not functioning either. The bathroom had a working toilet, but no running water. Ronald became so very paranoid, and he began censoring any mail coming in or going out of the house. Since there was no telephone at home, if he and Becky went to town and Becky asked to use the phone, he would stand there and monitor the entire conversation. He would not allow his wife or children to have really anything to do with anyone outside of them, including extended family. And... Becky was seen often with bruising on her face and arms, but none of it was ever reported to the police. But once the family was settled, Ronald worked a few menial jobs around Russellville, but was forced to quit or was fired one time for making inappropriate sexual advances to co-workers. He quit his final job that he had been at for around a year at a Sinclair Mini Mart gas station on December 18, 1987. So Becky, his wife, began to secretly save some money here and there to be able to take the remaining children that were still living at home and leave Ronald. The three oldest children, Jean Jr., Sheila, and William, were all now married and living in different cities. But he was most upset about Sheila being married and out of the house. Witnesses said that he became more and more depressed after she left. Jean Jr., concerned for his mother, got her a secret P.O. box so that she could get letters back and forth while she planned her escape. Here is one of the letters that she wrote to her son William and William's new wife. Quote, Loretta may be staying in town Friday night, so I'll have her mail this. I've been thinking of all you said, Bill, and I know you are right. I don't want to live the rest of my life with Dad, but I'm still trying to figure out how to start. What if I couldn't find a job for some time? You have to remember, I've never had a job since I've been married, or before that either. I know I have to start somewhere. It would all be so much easier if it were just me, but I have three kids also by then. So if you want to do any checking by telephone, go ahead and check and we can talk about it when you come. I've decided if I borrow from mom that I would have her send it to you. I'm still all very confused, but like I said, I do know I don't want to stay with dad, but don't want him getting more than he deserves. Yet, sometimes I feel God is telling me to be more patient. Right now, I'll just say, do some checking, and then it will help me make my decision. 
I would like for Loretta to move with you after she turns 18. She wants to go to college and she can get a job too. I don't think San Antonio is the place for her. Elle, Jean, and Wilma are back together, but they want to try it out and try to come get Barbara. I'm sure enjoying Barbara. She is a sweet, lovable, polite little girl. She is a good girl, and we all love her and enjoy her so much. She always has us laughing. I'm so proud of Trey. The last time you came, Dad wanted to know how come you didn't stay long enough to see him too. Now that Elgene and Wilma are back together, I wish they could move from San Antonio. Barbara needs both her parents. They've both been through so much. I hope it works out. I love them both. Wilma wrote me a letter telling me she loves Elgene very much, and she must. She went back to him, and I'm sure she has been hurt deeply. I want to see all my children happy. I've remembered a lot of what you said, Bill. I am a prisoner here, and the kids, too. I know when I get out, I might need help. Dad has had me like a prisoner that the freedom might be hard for me to take. Yet, I know it would be great having my children visit me anytime, having a telephone, going shopping if I want, going to church. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. I don't want to put any burden on my children, and I think it's best while hour before I get out too old. I want out, but it's the beginning. Once I get a job and place, then I can handle it with the mental support of my children. I can do it. It was hard to talk in front of L. Jean. He had been having it so hard, and his problems were deeply in my mind. I felt sorry for him. I was so afraid what he might go back and do. You are lucky, Bill. You have a very good wife. She has led you the right way, and that is toward God. She is very pretty, too. I've always thanked God for sending you a good wife. I'm thankful for Dennis, too. Give my darling Trey a lot of hugs and kisses for me. I love you all very much. Barbara gets bored if I take too long to write, so I hope I made sense in this letter. Hope Loretta can mail this Friday or Saturday on her way home. Love you very much. Mom. P.S. You all look so nice when you came. Loretta had a great time with Renata. She talked a lot about it. Unquote. I read the letter as she wrote it. So sometime around this, Ronald was observed forcing his children to dig a hole on his property that would come to have standing water in it, creating a cesspool, if you will. The property was covered in trash and broken down cars. It was filthy. So remember on December 18th, Ronald quit his job at the gas station. Then four days later, on December 22nd, 1987, Ronald Gene Simmons decided to enact a plan. Three days before Christmas, he decided to methodically kill each and every member of his family. He went to a local Walmart, bought a 22 caliber handgun. He went home. He then bludgeoned and shot his wife, Becky, as well as their son, Jean. 
He then strangled his three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara. Then he drugged the bodies outside and tossed them into the hole the children had thought they were digging for an outhouse. He then went back inside. He sat down, drank some beer, and waited for the remaining children who still lived at home to return. And as the other children came home, he happily informed them that he had gifts for each of them, but he wanted to give them their gifts one by one. The first to receive their, quote, gift was his daughter, 17-year-old Loretta. He beat her, strangled her, then drowned her in a rain barrel. The next three of his children, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky, received the exact same loving gift. Again, he tossed the bodies of his own children out in that pit. Ronald then went back inside the house. He sat down and began drinking, awaiting the arrival of the rest of his children who were scheduled to come over for a Christmas visit. Four days later, the day after Christmas, Ronald's son Billy, his wife Renata, and their small son Trey arrived for the planned family dinner. Ronald killed Billy and Renata by shooting them and then drowned little Trey. Then Sheila, Sheila's husband Dennis, and Sylvia, which is the child Ronald and Sheila had had together, as well as Sheila and Dennis's son Michael were to arrive later that evening. Once they did arrive, Sheila and Dennis were shot while the children were drowned. Now, unlike the first four whom he threw into the pit, these bodies were lined up neatly in the living room inside of the house. Each body was covered with coats except the corpse of his beloved Sheila. Her body was covered with the very best tablecloth that Becky had owned. The little bodies of the two grandchildren were wrapped in plastic sheeting and then left in abandoned cars at the end of the driveway. So feeling quite good about what he had done and what he had accomplished for the day, Ronald left the house and stopped by a Sears to pick up previously ordered Christmas gifts. He then visited a local bar and drank for a while before returning home. Ronald spent the next two days drinking beer amongst the dead bodies of his family on the floor around him. Then he began to reflect on others that he felt had slighted him in some way or another. On the morning of Monday, December 28th, he drove into town to the local law office of Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons Law Firm. Once inside, the first person to greet him was the receptionist, Kathy Kendrick. He blamed some of his problems on her, because previously he had made sexual advances to Kathy during his visits into the office, all of which had been ignored and denied. Now expecting his usual come-ons, Kathy thought nothing of it when Ronald showed up. He then fired his gun repeatedly at her head. Once he was satisfied she was dead, he left. 
another woman, a client, who had been in the office that day witnessed the entire event. She stated, quote, There was blood coming out of her head. It was real dark red blood, not like you'd expect to get from a cut. It's not blood like that. It's bright red. It was coming out of the back of her head. She was breathing. She had trouble breathing, but she was breathing. I thought he was going to kill everybody in the room. We didn't know why he was here." Unquote. The woman also said that she was scared to be home alone and at the same time scared to leave her house after. So once he left that office, Ronald stopped by the offices of the Taylor Oil Company where he shot and wounded his former boss, Russell Taylor, taking a gunshot wound to the chest. Ronald then shot and killed his former co-worker, J.D. Chafin. A woman working there, and this was only her second day there, opened the door from the warehouse after hearing a noise and found a gun pointed point-blank at her forehead. Ronald pulled the trigger, and she stated that she felt the heat from the bullet as she dove behind some crates. She later stated, quote, I just screamed no and went down. I believe that he thought he had hit me and that's why he left, unquote. She went on to say, quote, he just had a look in his eye like a mad dog. And when he looked at Jim on the floor and Jim was bleeding profusely, he showed no emotion or anything. He just turned around and pointed the gun at me and shot, unquote. Ronald then went into the office of the Woodline Motor Freight Company, where he pointed his gun at Elaine Butts, then shot her in the chest and in the head. Elaine had, at one time, told Ronald to leave Kathy alone and to stop making advances toward her, the Kathy that he had just killed. He then locked himself inside an office with another girl and while holding his gun to her head, told her he wasn't going to hurt her. He helped her up off the floor, into a chair, and even offered her a cigarette. He then told the woman to call the police. That quote, I've done what I wanted to do and now it's all over. I've gotten everybody who hurt me. Unquote. And once the police arrived, he handed over his guns and surrendered without any resistance. After being arrested by the Russellville police, it was noted that he did not speak a word to the authorities, not even as he was sent to the Arkansas State Hospital in Little Rock for a competency evaluation. Ronald was found to be sane and capable of standing trial. In May of 1988, he was found guilty of the murders of the victims that were not members of his family. Later that month, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection, plus 147 years. He was found guilty of 14 counts of capital murder in the deaths of his family members in February of 1989. The next month, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection for those murders. To expedite his execution, Ronald waived 
all rights to appeal in both trials. The then Arkansas governor, Bill Clinton, signed his execution warrant and in June of 1990, Ronald was put to death. This case was the quickest sentence to execution to death time in United States history. None of Simmons' existing family members would claim his body. Therefore, he was buried in a pauper's plot, as they call it, at Lincoln Memorial Lawn. Still today, it is unknown what made Simmons embark on his murderous rampage. So, since we have no childhood information about how he was raised, or what kind of parents he had, or what family history he inherited, it's hard to say if there were any underlying reasons beyond the obvious that would make him do what he did. So, studies show that overt incest happens in every civilized country, approximately one case yearly per one million people. The most common of these is father-daughter relationships. The father is usually somewhere around the age of 40, and the incest almost always occurs with the oldest daughter, age range from six years old through adulthood. And it often happens in homes where the wife slash mother is still very much in the picture, but the sexual relationship between the father and the mother is very strained or non-existent. It has been said that fathers who pursue their daughters have a higher percentage of parental separation or death in their own childhood, which could result in a lack of understanding in their developmental years. Most often, incestuous fathers are immature in their sexual orientation and are quite capable of extreme rationalization, and the mothers-slash-wives tend to be dependent, infantile women who likely put too much responsibility on their oldest daughter prematurely. Now, if you remember the letter that Becky had written to her son, it definitely sounded like she might have been pretty immature. In my opinion, anyone who puts their hands on an underage child, and especially a parent, knows that it's completely unacceptable, and therefore, there is no mercy. Again, just my opinion. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram, at serial underscore killing, or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. I do answer all DMs as best I can. You can also visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of time to put these together, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thank you and have a great day.